Good morning again. So my question for you this morning is, was there ever a time in your life that you struggled to understand something that was obvious to other people? Was there ever a time in your life you struggled to understand something that other people seemed to grasp? Everyone else got it, but you just kind of struggled to connect the dots. Somebody could have looked at you and said, what more do you need to understand this, to get what's happening right now? But you were clueless in that situation. How about I give you a personal example? Maybe maybe that will help. Let me preface this personal example by saying I'm so thankful for the love and support of my wife, Christine, because before I met Christine, I really struggled with dating and understanding women. So let me give you an example about this. When I was in college, there was a young lady who I liked, I was interested in. And I finally worked up the courage to ask this young lady out on a date. We were walking back from class. I said, I like talking to you. I like spending time together. I'd, would you be interested in getting dinner with me on Friday? And she said, uh, no, I'm busy on Friday. <laughs> and I was undeterred by this. I said, well, how about Saturday? I had some free time available. She said, no, I'm busy on Saturday. I said, well, how about Sunday? She said, no, I'm busy on Sunday. Some of you are laughing because you've already figured out what I have not figured out yet at that time. I said, what about Monday? No, no, Monday wouldn't work for me. Well, how about Tuesday? I'm busy on Tuesday. And at this point, we were both pretty frustrated. I was frustrated because I couldn't believe this person was that busy that they (laughs) didn't eat, apparently, all week. Whereas while she was saying I'm busy, what she meant was no, period, stop, stop asking me. So finally, she took the mature way out. I said, what about Wednesday? She said, I'll have to check and let you know. Uh, Afterwards, I finally connected the dots. I was like, she didn't seem very excited about that. Oh, okay, that's my answer there. The point is, sometimes something can be staring you in the face and you just don't get it. It just doesn't make sense. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark. We've been trying to answer this question, who is Jesus? And this week, the passage we're in is Mark 8, verses 11 through 21. And we're going to look at two conversations with some other people who just didn't get it. Some of them struggled to believe in Jesus. Some of them struggled to trust Jesus. But in both cases, Jesus gets... It seems like Jesus gets frustrated, and he basically says to them, what more do you need? What more do you need to understand who I am? And these people he's talking to should have looked at the evidence. They should have remembered what Jesus had done, and they should have understood who he is. So if you're not there already, please turn your Bibles to the book of Mark chapter 8, We're looking at verses 11 through 21. If you want to use that blue Bible in the seat back in front of you, I believe it's on page 1003, 1003, but we'll also have it up on the screen. And once you are there, I'd ask you, if you're able, to please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along. I'm going to read our passage for today. This is Mark chapter 8, big 8, little 11 through 21. Mark 8, 11 through 21. Verse 11 says that the Pharisees came. They began to argue with him, argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit 
and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Verse 14 says, Now they, the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he, again Jesus, cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Verse 17, And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Let's pray. Lord, forgive us when we, when we just don't understand. Help us today, God, to believe in you. Believe in you for salvation, for life. To trust you with whatever situation we encounter, whatever we are going through in life. I pray, Lord, that you would lead us to look at the evidence, to see what you have done, to remember your actions, the things you've done for us, things you've done in the past, to remember who you are. Give us the strength to wait on you, to depend on you. Lord, with many other distractions, many things that could confuse us, may we see you clearly. May we know you. May we trust you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you remember where we were in the Gospel of Mark, or if you weren't here, we were just in kind of the end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, and we just saw Jesus. He was in Gentile territory, so non-Jewish territory, even though he was a Jew, and he just miraculously fed 4,000 people. He did this miracle feeding thousands, and then he got in a boat with his disciples to return to the Jewish side of the lake that he was near, the Lake of Galilee to return to his people, to his homeland. And as soon as he gets there, he meets some people who need to be asked, what more do you need to believe in Jesus? What more do you need to believe in Jesus? He's having this conflict with the Pharisees who were religious leaders of the day. We've seen the conflict with them before, but here we are again, another confrontation with these men. In fact, Jesus has just crossed the seas, practically just got out of the boat, and the Pharisees meet Jesus at the shore, and they begin to argue with him, dispute with him, question him. They also ask for and seek, uh, the text kind of implies, they demand that he give them a sign, a miracle from heaven. Look at verse 11, the Pharisees came, began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. 
They wanted a conclusive sign from God, something miraculous in the sky from the heavens, that a way to prove that Jesus is who he says he is. And on the surface, that might sound like an honest request, but Jesus knew that they had deceitful motives. After all, he had just fed 4,000 people. He did most of his miracles in public. And we've talked a lot, if you've been here when we've been studying this book, there's always crowds around Jesus. There's always people, it seems to be, who are around him, listening to him, looking and seeing what he's doing. The Pharisees had seen miracles. They've been surrounded by his miracles and signs, but they were still hard-hearted against Jesus. And so they wanted to test him. They wanted to harass him. And by testing and harassing Jesus, they're really testing and harassing God. They were constantly opposed to Jesus. We can see another example of this in the Gospel of John. John 8 speaks of how the Pharisees said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Their minds were already made up. So when they asked for a sign, they're not expecting him to do it. They've already made up their mind. It's like, have you ever watched a, uh, a news interview and a lot of news channels especially the big national ones they typically have one political slant one way or the other but when they're interviewing somebody from the other side they always ask a question like how could you support this horrible thing like there's no right answer to that question they've already made up their minds in advance that's the same thing these pharisees are doing and it's revealing a deeper reality they are proud they're opposed to god I've been reading this week in my Sunday school class, we're studying a book by a guy named William Bridge, who was a Puritan, and he actually wrote about this passage, and I liked what he said. He said, they asked for a sign so that they might go on in their sins. They just wanted to keep sinning against God, doing their own thing, not listening to Jesus. That's what they wanted. They didn't want a sign. They didn't want to turn from their sin and know God. And Jesus can only be received by those who have experienced a change of heart. And so we see in our text in verse 12 that Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit out of frustration, exasperation, probably sadness as well. He is sick and tired of their attitude. His patience with their hostility seems to be exhausted. And so we ask a rhetorical question, why does this generation seek a sign? And then he adds a guarantee, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. It's really kind of a harsh phrase. There's some strong emotion from Jesus here. It's kind of like he's saying, there will be no sign, so help me God, you will not get what you're asking for right now. Now we may say, well, why does Jesus say this? Why is he so harsh with these people? This doesn't seem like a loving Jesus. Well, because remember, Jesus has argued with these people a lot, and he knows the truth. No sign will convince them. Even if he did do something, that wouldn't change their thoughts. And so he doesn't play their game. He doesn't appease them with a miracle. He could, but it's not worth it. If he did it, they would just explain it away. Oh, it was supposed to be cloudy today. It was supposed to have a sudden thunderstorm today. They wouldn't have believed it. They don't believe Jesus. They do not know God. Jesus kind of hints at why he's doing this with some of the words he uses. You notice I, I tried to italicize that word generation there. 
Now, when we use generation, we just mean a group of people born between a certain number of years. But in the Bible, generation often has a very negative connotation. In Scripture, it's often used to talk about a group of people who are opposed to God. For example, in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says this. It says about the Lord, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. But then the focus changes to his people, and it says they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. That's how that word is used in the Bible, a group of people opposed to God. Jesus does this a lot. Uh, two more examples are here in Mark. In the next chapter, we'll get to 9.19, Jesus answers them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Or in chapter 8, he says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, saying, why do these sinners seek a sign? They are not going to get it. And so then back in our passage, when Jesus says no sign will be given to this generation, he really means there's not going to be anything else beyond what you already have. There's not going to be a further sign. The evidence is already there. Because he's not talking to honest seekers. These are religious leaders, men who should have opened their, their scrolls, their Old Testament, the Scripture. They should have seen, this is what God's Word says, this is what Jesus is doing, and that should have answered their questions, but they refuse to pay attention to that. They'd already been given signs by Jesus's miracles, but they had missed the point. Another example of this is in John 6. There's a crowd of people this time. This is when Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus others. He feeds them, and then the very next day, so he's just miraculously fed them, 5,000 plus of them saw it. The very next day, those same people come up to him and say, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And Jesus has to say to them, stop looking for that. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's telling them, you need to know me. Don't seek after a sign, but know me, who I am. I'm the one who satisfies. I'm the one who provides. But since these Pharisees don't get it, in our text, Jesus immediately leaves again. He just got there. He came across the boat, hopped out the boat. They run up to him. They're like, show us a sign. And then he immediately turns around. He's ready to go. In our text, verse 13 says, he left them, got in the boat again, and went to the other side. I almost get this mental picture in my mind of he's talking to them. They say this, and I get him shaking his head, turning away, and hopping in that boat to leave again. It's, it's humorous in a sense, but it's also a very sad picture because this is the loving Son of God abandoning these hard-hearted religious people to their fate. The scholar Danny Aiken puts it this way, these religious zealots were physically so close to our Lord, but they had never been further away where it really mattered. In their hearts. They have lost him. Scripture speaks of when God leaves his people as a form of divine judgment, and that's what Jesus is doing. He is leaving them. His presence is not going to stay with these people. For example, in the book of Exodus, 
God is speaking to his people after they just sinned against him. And God tells them to go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Go to that good place. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. He's still going to give them the good things, but he says, I'm not going to be there with you. And we say, well, that's okay. I still get what I want. All right. But that's not how they reacted. Verse 4 says, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. No one put on his ornaments. No one dressed up. No one was, was happy about it. They realized if God is not with us, that is a bad thing. And that's the sad truth about this little story we're reading in Mark. The Pharisees probably thought that they won this encounter. Jesus showed up. They said, show us a sign. He said no and turned around. They went, ha ha, see, I told you. He couldn't do it. But the reality was they were the ones being judged because Jesus left them. One pastor, Jason Meyer, says, Jesus does not want them to think he is under their judgment. They are under his. But let me ask us, what about you who are here today? Do you believe in Jesus. And if you don't, then I would encourage you to look at the evidence, to look at the evidence of who Jesus is. If we look in his word, if we look at the things we've been talking about, if we see what Jesus has done and we look at it with an open heart, there is more than enough evidence to see that he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. That truth is there if you are able to receive it. For all of us, this is a reminder that it's not that people refuse to believe in God because there's not enough evidence. There is evidence. People reject him because their heart is far from God. Like these Pharisees, they say they, say they want a sign, but they've already seen signs. They don't want a sign. Their heart is far from him. But the good news in that is that Jesus wants to change hearts. His Holy Spirit can give us a new birth. The word the Bible uses sometimes is regeneration. We're born again so that we can believe in the first place. Through the Holy Spirit, we can see the truth. Jesus lived. He is the Son of God. He lived a perfect life. He died on our behalf for sin. He was really buried in a tomb, and He really rose again in a glorious resurrection. I like how the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, the message of what Christ did and who he is. Now, Paul acknowledges that's a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolish, a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Jews, non-Jews, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. thinking about this, I'd like to take a moment here to speak to those of you who are here today, and maybe you do not believe in Jesus. Maybe you do not have a relationship with him. Perhaps you're listening and you've never believed in him. Well, I see you're in a church this morning, or I see you're listening online. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. I'm glad you're here, but like those Pharisees, you are close to Jesus, but you're still far from him in your heart close is not good enough. God only saves those who have a personal relationship with him and him alone. 
If you're looking for just one more piece of evidence, you know, if there was one more thing I saw to see that Jesus is real, if there was one more example of God's goodness in my life, then I will come to him. If that's what you're looking for, friend, you will be waiting forever. There will always be another excuse. There will always be something else you need before you believe. And I must warn you as well, there's not going to be a miraculous sign from heaven to prove to you Jesus is real before it is too late for you. And after all, Christianity is a belief. It is a faith. It's something we have to trust in. Now, don't, don't mishear me in that. I truly believe that God's truth makes logical sense. Absolutely. But you cannot fully reason your way to God. He calls you to respond to his truth in faith to turn away from sin, saying, I'm going to turn away from the way I used to live, even though it may still make a little sense to me now, and instead, I'm going to believe and trust in Jesus and in Him alone. You may want, want, you may want more evidence. You may say, you know, I wish I had this and this so I could believe. You may want that, but you are in no place to question God, to question how He reveals Himself. After all, He is God, and you are not. The Apostle Paul would put it this way in the book of Romans. He says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Now, by all means, diligently search for him. Do your research. But know that Jesus calls you to come in faith today, to turn and believe, to come to him what more do you need to believe? But what about those of us who do have a relationship with Jesus? We may know him, but when life gets hard, we can get discouraged. And so we need to be challenged with the question, what more do you need to trust Jesus? What more do you need to trust Jesus? We see this question come up with Jesus' disciples. Perhaps because they had left and got back in the boat so quickly, the disciples seemed to have forgotten to buy more bread to eat. And this is a real need. They did not have enough food, but they should have remembered that miraculous feeding of 4,000 that had just happened, maybe even that day or the day before. Look at verse 14. It says, now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And once again, the disciples are focused on the problem rather than the presence of Jesus himself with them. So in verse 15, Jesus cautions, warns, charges his disciples to watch out, to beware of the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees and of King Herod. Here, Jesus is taking the opportunity to give them a spiritual warning, to talk about the danger of self-reliance and hypocrisy. He is focusing on the danger of unbelief and hardness of heart, the unwillingness to believe what they know is true. He gives two examples. On the one hand, he speaks of Herod. And you may remember, this was a while ago we talked about him, but King Herod was the ruler of that area. And he knew the truth of God. John the Baptist talked to him regularly. But instead of following God, instead of believing in him, King Herod chased after his own satisfaction of self-gratification, 
We talked back then about how he abused his power and engaged in gross sexual sin. So Jesus is saying, don't do that. But on the other hand, the Pharisees, they also knew God's word. But instead of believing in Jesus, they trusted in themselves and their own pride. Jesus would talk several times about this problem. He used this image of leaven often. In Luke 12, for example, it talks about a time when many thousands of people gathered together. Around them, trampling one another. Jesus began to say to his disciples, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. This hypocrisy, this unbelief is like leaven, like a little bit that you put in bread that then affects everything else. If you have this seed of self-confidence, it can impact the rest of your life. He's saying the rules these Pharisees want to follow, they think they're doing all the right things. If, if you base your life on what you do, that's a spiritually dangerous place to be because you're depending on yourself rather than God. And in, in fact, at this moment, the disciples are like, we didn't bring bread. Oh no, we're going to cause hunger for ourselves. They're just like the Pharisees. They're listening to their unbelief rather than trusting in Jesus. That's why Jesus brings this up here. But we see in verse 16 that the disciples fear, or let's be honest, probably their hunger kept them from grasping this truth that Jesus had just shared. They believe Jesus, well, he's talking about yeast because we do not have enough bread. That was what was on their mind. That was their primary concern. So they assume Jesus must be talking about the same thing that we are. As it says, they began discussing with one another the fact they had no bread. In reality, Jesus is talking about the conversation with the Pharisees, these people who out of their hard hearts reject and turn away from him. But the disciples are just focused on the lack of bread. It's like Jesus said that, and they said, yep, you're right, Jesus, leaven can be bad, which is why we need some good bread when we don't have any good bread right now. Perhaps they even argued with one another. I thought you were going to buy the bread. I thought you were going to. Maybe they blamed each other for forgetting the food that they needed. And I think this must have been so frustrating for Jesus. After all, he, he just took this boat journey across the sea, got there, got into an argument with somebody, hops in a boat again, and he has to listen to more arguing, more people who do not understand what he is saying. The disciples needed to learn. They are literally with Jesus, physically, right now. So it didn't matter how much bread they had with them. So Jesus responds in the next few verses with several very searching questions. He's not shaming them, but he's teaching them. He asks them, why are you talking about bread? Do you not see or perceive? Do you not know, comprehend, or understand what is going on? Are your hearts hardened? Do your eyes not see? Do your ears not hear? Do you remember what just happened? Maybe even that very day or at least the day before. And he spells it out for him, verses 19 and 20. He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? said to him, well, 12. And when I broke seven small pieces of bread for 4,000 people, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. Jesus is making the point, you, my disciples, should know my power. You should trust me to take care of you. But the reality is their hearts are partially hardened. They do not fully understand who Jesus is. This has been a persistent problem for them here in Mark. You may remember back in chapter 6 that 
This was right after Jesus fed 5,000 people, or at least 5,000 men plus others. And then he walks on the water to them in the middle of some type of storm. And what does verse 51 and 52 says? It says he got in the boat with them. The wind ceased. He just fed 5,000. He just made wind stop blowing. They're utterly astounded. Why? Because they did not understand about the loaves, what he just did. Their hearts were hardened. They're slow to appreciate Jesus's identity. They do not understand what it means for their lives. They had not reflected on the significance of what had happened. They'd been traveling with Jesus, probably been a busy schedule. There's crowds all around. They see these miracles, but it seems like they haven't taken a lot of time to sit back and go, what does this all mean? What are we doing right now? What is happening? Who is this Jesus? But Jesus still had hope for them. Unlike the Pharisees, he didn't leave them. I mean, Jesus could walk on the water. He could have just hopped out of the boat and walked the other way if he was through with them. But no, he, he stayed there with them. He's with them. He's still talking to them. Like you and me and everyone else, they were slow learners, but Jesus is challenging them to grow. He's using his words to try to point them to a larger truth. For example, we saw that it said, uh, this was in verse 18, having eyes do you not see, ears do you not hear? Which is interesting because just a little bit ago, if you look at the very end of chapter 7, we read about how Jesus healed a deaf man. And if you have some type of heading in your Bible, you may see the very next passage, he's going to heal a blind man. Those are pictures of what is happening to these disciples. They're slowly coming to understand who he is. By using these eyes and ears, it's a gracious and loving challenge from the Lord. In the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, God uses similar language. He says, hear this, O foolish, senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. It's a challenge to hear and believe. And these questions from Jesus challenge us as well. After all, we are reading, we're studying through the gospel of Mark. We have the same evidence the disciples did. Yes, we didn't see it, but we've read it here. We've heard about what Jesus can do. So the question for us is, do we trust Jesus? And that's why Jesus ends with this final question in verse 21 of our text. He said to them, do you not yet understand? Do you still not understand? How is it you do not understand who I am and what I can do? The disciples are challenged to think about who is Jesus. And they will think about him very soon. Uh, in fact, if, you know, Lord willing, our schedule holds in two weeks, they'll start to finally put the pieces together about who Jesus is. What they should have understood right now is that Jesus is God. He is the creator and giver of life. Paul would write about him in Colossians chapter 1 that by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, in him all things hold together. And if Jesus created all things, if he has power over all things, then he has the power to take care of the disciples to take care of you and me. The disciples did not need to be afraid. They could trust God. It was sinful foolishness for them not to trust him. And finally, finally, after Jesus died and rose again, and then after he ascended to heaven, they finally learned to trust him first. We see an example of this in the book of Acts. 
These same disciples are being persecuted. But look how they respond in Acts 4. They come to God in prayer. They say, now, Lord, look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Instead of running, they ask for help. Help us to speak boldly. While you, God, continue to stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They finally got it. They could trust Jesus. It just took them a while to get there. And there's some encouragement there for us, because like the disciples, we can struggle to trust God as well. We can struggle to trust him to take care of us. Like them, we can worry about little things. This whole conversation is because they just have this one loaf of bread. That's their concern. But how different is that from us? We can worry about that one test we have this week, or that one very difficult meeting at work coming up, or perhaps that uh, family member or relationship that we have that's so difficult and a struggle. We spend our time thinking about that. Maybe there's some problem with our home, our apartment, something that draws all our focus together. And when that happens, we miss what Jesus is trying to teach us about his character, about how he calls us to follow him and trust him. Yet even then, he is patient with us. A British pastor, J.C. Ryle, put it this way, it is a blessed thought that Jesus, our master in heaven, despises none of his people. Here he's talking about the disciples, and he says, as marvelous and blameworthy as their slowness to learn undoubtedly is, his, Jesus's patience, never gives way. Yes, they should have known better, but Jesus did not reject him. He was still patient with them. So if that's true, if we should learn to trust him, if we should know better, what should we do? Well, I have two suggestions for us. One is that we should remember what he has done. Remember what Jesus has done in the past. Because it's only by remembering past blessings that we can trust Jesus in the present. We saw this in our text, how Jesus pointed back to those feedings. Do you remember when I fed 5,000? Do you remember when I fed 4,000? In the same way, we can trust him now. After all, his word tells us in Philippians 4.19 that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Also, friends, we need to ask ourselves, has God supplied my needs so far? Well, then trust him to do it again. If we remember what he has done for us, that can be a great encouragement to us. And as we share about what he has done, that can be an encouragement to others as well. One pastor, Kent Hughes, put it this way, it is energizing to recall memories of God's deliverance. Our memories can become fountains of power for others as well. And that sentence really struck me because this guy is not a charismatic guy. When he says power, he's talking about people can remember what God has done and trust him, trust Jesus to act on their behalf. So that's what we should do. We should remember what God has done. Whatever you need to do to remember, whether it's just running in your mind, here's the good things God has done for me today or this week, this month, this year. Maybe it's writing it down and reviewing, here's some ways God has helped me. In the Old Testament, they often would set up a stone. They'd take a stone and set it upright so that they could look at it and remember, oh, God has helped me here. Maybe there's something you need to set aside as a visual reminder. Oh, that's supposed to remind me about how God helped me with that situation. Do what you need to do to remember what God has done for you so that when you doubt God's goodness, 
You can remember, you can look at that, you can look at what you have written, you can remember the truth that, no, Jesus has worked for me. Of course, I can, it's very hard for me to make it through a sermon without quoting Charles Spurgeon. So here it is, I know you're waiting for it, but I really like his application here. He says, let us look back upon the whole of our past lives and see whether there is not enough in our diaries to condemn our doubts and bury our cares. Now, not all of us have diaries, but he's saying, if you look at, back at your life, there should be enough to condemn any doubt you have about God to bury any care that threatens to take over your mind. And uh, then he goes on to say, or at least shut up our anxieties, shut up our worries in a cage made of the golden bars of past mercy, fastened in with the jeweled bolts of gratitude. That's good writing there. That's why I quote him there. What he's saying is, in your mind, take your worries, your anxieties, by remembering what God has done, you can put those anxieties away in a cage. You can remember, no, God has been faithful to me in the past. He has shown me mercy, so I don't need to worry about that. And then you can fasten it with, not only has he shown me that, I've thanked God for that. I've been grateful for it, so that does not need to be controlling my mind. Instead, let us give glory in what the Lord is going to do and magnify his name for his mercy, which is yet to be revealed. Brothers and sisters, has God provided for you in the past? Has he been faithful to you before? Maybe you need to think a little further back. Has he saved you? Has he saved you from sin? Has he led you to turn from sin and believe in him? Do you have a relationship with him? Has he taken care of your eternity? Then why would he not take care of you today? Why would he not help you again today? Trust him. So we should remember what he has done. Something else that may help is to understand who he is and wait for him understand who he is and wait for him because he has the power to help you i'll put that up again but for now look at matthew 28:18 jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me i put some emphasis in there Note, it doesn't say some authority. It doesn't say most authority. The authority to help that person's problems, but not yours. No, it says all authority. All we need, he possesses. So we have room to grow in our knowledge of who he is. We should learn more. We should grow. We should understand that Jesus is God. There is nothing that he cannot do. But there's another reality to that, and that's he uses his power where he wills and when he wills. He often doesn't act when we would want. He often doesn't act how we would want him to, but he is God. He knows what is best. That's why we have to wait for him. Now, you could object to that. You could say, well, that's not fair that I have to wait for God. You can say that, but let me just push back a little. Do you remember how you treated God before you knew him? Do you remember that you did not treat God fairly? God gave you everything. He gave you life, breath, your family, your life situation, anything good in your life that you can count, he gave to you. And yet, you still chose to sin against him, to reject his word, his truth, to live your own way for your own interest, to break his law, his instructions. That's not fair. 
And then let me tell you something else that is not fair. He provided a way for all your wrongs, that record, to be washed away. He provided a way to save his enemies, to save you, the one opposed to him, the one who earned his judgment. He provided a way to save you. That's not fair. You didn't earn the right to be saved. You didn't do something and God said, well, you're pretty impressive. Let me let you into heaven. No, he provided the way to save you. So friends, we did not treat God the way he wanted. So he does not have to treat us exactly the way that we want. Again, I quoted this guy at the beginning, William Bridge, put it this way. Now shall God wait for us and for our repentance? And shall we not wait for him and his grace? God waited for us to come to know him. We can wait for him to rescue us now. And friends, if we truly know God, then he will act for us. So let us wait and trust him. Yes, it is hard. It can be difficult. It can be moments of despair, of brokenness, of hardship in that. But he is still good, and we are called to trust him. So today we consider two questions that I think apply to every person here. If you do not know God, then the question is, what more do you need to believe in Jesus? You should look at the evidence and turn from sin, believe in him today. Talk to someone today about how can I know God and have a relationship with him? And if you do know Jesus, then the question is, what more do you need to trust Jesus? Remember what he has done before. Understand that he has all power. Wait for him. And as you wait, praise him for being a good God because he alone is worthy of that praise.